0: I bow at the cross and I say, Lord, my life belongs to you. Do with me what you will. That's a Christian. Seven chapter seven, fourteen through twenty five, in the English, that is not who you read there. Who you read there is a wretch. A person who has more than a conflict, he has defeat. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazzella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. The Mystery of Sin and a New Creation is the title of this podcast. Joe Durso examines the problem with translation, and specifically within the passage of Romans 7, 14 through twenty five. By the end of this broadcast, you should feel encouraged that Christians can receive God's word and meaning in English. As always, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message, the misery of sin in a new creation. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is holy and it is perfect and it is true. We thank you that we are studying from a book that's a miracle. A miracle that you're able to take men who are imperfect and create a perfect book. It doesn't seem to be reasonable, but we're talking about a God who parted the Red Sea, who put on shoes, kept shoes on people for 40 years, who brought manna or bread down from heaven and fed the people who brought water from a rock, who brought ten plagues that destroyed Egypt, part of the Red Sea, and just delivered the people of Israel. We're talking about a God who created everything from nothing. You are a miracle-working God. So we pray that we might exalt, exalt the word of God in this broadcast and show that as it was written in its original form, in the original Greek and Hebrew, it is a consistent word. It is a perfect word. It is a good word. It's worthy of all the praise that is spoken of in your word by your people as they were inspired by your hand. We give you the praise for all the good that you do through your word and the Holy Spirit in the lives of your people. We ask these things. Bless us now in the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your Bibles in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. 14 to 25, beginning at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am, I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, not I do not do. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. the law of sin. May God bless the hearing of his word. Now what I want to do is at this point, I would like to look at uh, New Testament authors and their use of words and translations that result from the original Greek text. I'm not going to go into any great details here. And to be honest and be straight up, I'm not a Greek scholar. I know how to study Greek. I know how to study and read scholars. I, I, I'm i familiar with uh, the Greek text in, to some degree. Um, but let me let me say this. The word of God is inherent and infallible in the original texts of Hebrews, Aramaic, and Greek. And All all solid evangelicals understand this. So, godly men from the past understood and would agree with those remarks. Well saved men understand that. That being said, translations are not perfect as they are, and as they are not ancient texts, and neither are they written in the original language, any translation. Languages are not all equal as some languages may translate more poorly in some cases than others. Again, a translator strives to do their best in their work, and God takes their efforts and turns a good translation into his word, making Paul's words true that he wrote to Timothy, quote, "...all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for, rebuke, for correction." For training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be fully capable, equipped for every good word, work. That's Second Timothy three sixteen. Now, having said that, we must understand that a good translation, which is the Word of God, and one reading it is reading Scripture as it were through a veil. It is clear understandable to the person who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, by whom God gives his meaning to the words he used with certain limitations. And that's why when reading it, you re- we're reading it through a veil. It's clear, but it's not like if there were no veil. However, as just stated, the diligent student, if he can, if he has access to the right tools, studies the grammar in the original learns the meaning of the words and the human that the human author used into in write the scriptures no person is ever given hear this no person is ever given liberty to read into god's word his own meaning or interpretation but he must read out of the scripture god's intended meaning that's why there's one interpretation and that belongs to god and every man every person who studies the scripture who would studied the scripture with integrity would search the scripture with that in mind, finding out what God means by what God has written. It doesn't matter about human instrumentality. Why? Because God overrules all of that. God is a miracle-working God. The Bible is a miracle. It's a miracle of God. And it and it is just that, the word of God. Therefore, God says to us without fear of contradiction, quote, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Taking those words to mean exactly what they say, even in that English translation, which is a good translation, they mean exactly that. The careful reader of Isaiah chapter 1 we'll take note of the context within which Isaiah is speaking Israel like the world was comprised of sinful people to them God gave the sacrificial system which way which they could be made clean that's what the sacrificial system was there for to look to God's provision to have their sins washed away however the people worshiped by outward ordinances but their heart was not honest. So God warns the people of their hypocritical sacrifices and then admonishes them in verses 17, 16 and 17, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Put another way, He's telling the people, repent. Turn from the evil way so that I might forgive you. And in that context, he gives that wonderful promise of cleansing. And so that's the context, and that's what that verse means. And God is being personable, person, perfectly reasonable. Let us reason together. Let us make a good decision. And the decision is, if you do this, I'll make your sins like they were white as snow. Now what I want to do, and I'm saying all that to understand that I believe that of all the scripture that I've studied over the course of 47 years, in that course of all that time and all that study and all that reading and all that meditating and all that praying, no text has in some ways, and I should say poorly translated text, done me more harm than Romans chapter 7 verses 14 to 25. Wrongly understood, we look at the text and it's basically saying that Christian people, regenerate people, born-again people, people who have been given a new heart, who are a new creation in Christ, such people who are belong have become child of God, who turned from their sins, are nothing more than wretched people. And as I, as I continue to contemplate this, as I continue to study this text, specifically 14 to 25 of Romans 7. I I see that it's it's inconsistent with the rest of the New Testament teaching and I think the biggest problem is is in the translation. You say well what are you going to do you're not a Greek scholar. That's right, but I I know how to look at Greek words and I know that Greek words are it's a it's a very Strict, uh, very adequate language. God did not pick it for no reason. He wanted the Greek. He wanted the New Testament in Greek, and he wanted it just because of the way it is. And when you look at the words, they have very full, rich meaning. And I'm probably not going to do this as good as a as a as a Greek scholar who is uh, focused on making sure that the text is making the fullness of the words in the Greek in this text so that it is consistent with the rest of the text around it immediately and the whole of the scripture, which it is not. And if, you, if you're if you not sure about that, go to Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25 by Martin Lloyd-Jones. A very godly man, a very humble man, a, a man of great character, a, a man definitely called of God, a wonderful preacher, not because he was a great orator, which he was, but because he loved God. And he he spent time in God, with God, obviously. And when he when he preached, he preached the scriptures well. And when he gets to this portion, he struggles with the portion. I'm not gonna lie, but he places the portion, particularly in the one, the first of the two sermons on this. On 14 to 25, and he, he looks at the surrounding and the whole of the New Testament, and he shows that what's being said in our English translation of 14 to 25 is not consistent with the overall condition of a Christian who has a person who has come to Christ and is a child of God. So I'm going to read it now, 14 to 25, of Romans, and, and I'm going to do that Um with a fuller, you know, I I guess we could call it a paraphrase, but I'm really not deviating much from the exact words that are used. I'm just painting them in the picture of of the meaning of the words, which is what a translator does. He, what does this, which word is this? Let's put that word down as as close and equal equivalent, not a dynamic equivalent, not, not just meaning, not trying to be a commentator in, in using these words, but using as close as I could word for word. And, and now I'm going to read Romans 7 14 to 25. Having uh, you listening to the other one first. Beginning at verse 14. The law came from God who is spiritual. I am of flesh, which I am not dependent upon God by faith, it is of no help. Let me say that again. Romans 14, the law came from God who is spiritual. I am a flesh, which if I am not dependent upon God by faith, it is of no help. For my labor, I do not know from personal experience because that is not my me anymore as the regular routine of my life. God has birthed within me a new desire. What I labor, I hate. For if I work out this desire, I consent with the law that it is good. But not the work, but now the work is sometimes forfeited because sin missed the mark within me. For I perceive no good residing in my flesh as it is unaided by God, but the willingness to act well resides beside it. That which opposes, bringing to a conclusion the beautiful good that inspires others. The inherent good that arises from God, I desire by faith. I do not produce my habitual practice, the inner malice. But if I do what I do, not want any longer, it is sin that remains. After searching, I find, therefore, the principle of inner malice lying down beside me who practices praiseworthy good. For I delight by fully identifying with Christ, with the law of God in my soul and conscience. But I perceive that what action should be taken regarding a distinctly different kind of principle and law in my various working parts, opposing and waging war against the law as a principle of my ability to reason through faith and subjugate my mind regarding the law and principle of missing the mark by a self-empowered nature and not of God in my being, beaten down and miserable from hardship as an individual who can rescue me from this misery of soul. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It follows then, therefore, by concession, that I with my reasoning mind am serving as a slave God's law. But proceeding from what is not transformed by God's law as a principle, I forfeit what does not hit the target. That's verse 20, end of verse 25. Now I'm going to take these one verse at a time. I don't know how much we'll get through uh, today's broadcast. But I, I, I want you to ask yourself as you listen to these two, how did you feel, not that feelings are the big thing, we're, this, we're dealing with the mind, but as you thought through the first rendering of the Scripture, did you feel like defeated? I, I find it hard to believe that if you read 14 to 25 in our English, New American Standard, King James, name it, English, if you read it, you, you, you walk away like, there's no way that I'm going to be successful in the Christian life. I mean, I'm, I'm a wretched sinner. Now, when I add to the words, you know, you say, well, it's not word for word, you know, because I'm not using the word sin in some cases. I'm, I'm talking about missing the mark because the word means missing the mark. And that's You know, I could use the word sin. No, it's sin. Well, it is sin, but by definition of the word used, it's missing the mark. Why use missing the mark? Well, because because it's missing the mark, and in the context, there's principle being used, there's law being used, but it's law as a principle. And there's law as the command, and there's law as a principle, and those have different meanings. You know, so as we put down commands and we lay down sin, it's giving us a picture, but the picture can be easily misunderstood in, uh, in, in, as if we use another word for sin or we use another word. You see, it, it, it gives shades of meaning. Now, as we look through 14 through 25, we need to understand the context. With for, Just for instance, First John. 1 John makes it very, very clear in chapter one, that sin is is present. And then two through five, he makes it very, very clear that a child of God is a person who does not practice habitual sin. If you are a habitual practice of sin throughout your whole life, you are not saved. You're not a Christian. A Christian receives Jesus Christ as Lord. That means Jesus Christ is God, and as God, he's Lord, which means he's the master and I'm the slave, and I want to obey him. He saved me. He poured out his life for me. He gave his life for me. He paid the price of all my sins. He took those sins into eternity out of appreciation. I bow at the cross and I say, Lord, my life belongs to you. Do with me what you will. That's a Christian. Seven, Chapter 7, 14 through 25. In the English, that is not who you read there. Who you read there is a wretch, a person who has more than a conflict; he has defeat. Now, is the word really saying that in the Greek? I say it, no. I say anybody who can go on a, on a site that tears into the Greek or books. I use Kittle, one of the finest Greek commentaries for words, and they'll go on thirty-five pages to explain a single word. And, they, and they'll look at the, the meaning of those words and how they should be used. And then you go into this Greek text and you say, well, wow, it's a, it's a lot more meaning behind this text than what we read in an English translation. Don't know why. Don't, want, don't know why the translators, well, can they all be wrong? Yes, they can. Uh, don't underestimate Satan, in, certainly not in translation. Don't, you know? Do, if you can, search for yourself. If you don't find the same color of the of the words used in this text, that when you you spend eno- em- enough hours working at it, that you don't come away with something closer to what I just read, which is more consistent with the New Testament, definitely first John all of the New Testament, that makes a man a new creation in Christ who has been born again, who's regenerate. He's been, Hebrews 8 and 10, you know, given a new, he's under a new covenant where he gets a new heart. And in that heart is placed the law of God and on his mind is placed the law of God so that he knows the law, he loves the Lord, he seeks to do. And not only that, he's given the Holy Spirit as a power, an energizer to do these things. And then he's going to walk away from Romans 7 as a wretch. I'm not saying there isn't a battle. I'm not saying there isn't even defeat at times. I'm not saying that there isn't a struggle. Obviously, he's in misery in verse 24. But there's a difference between in misery sometimes, and yet the joy of God existing in the heart, and a great deal of victory, far more victory, than a person in the flesh could ever have. Meaning that God is a miracle-working God, and he can provide the miracle of holiness in a Christian. And if you don't believe that, well, then at best, your, is ve- your faith is very weak, if not existent. And if it's not existent, you're not a Christian. But if it exists, and if it's gaining strength through a proper understanding of God's word, then you'll have more and more victory over sin. And if not, part of the problem could be this text. And that's what I want to spend time looking at. So the first verse, 14, as we, as we look at verse 14 in, in the original text, and I'm going to read it right now, 7.14.4. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Sold into bondage to sin. Who is this person? And, and then the debate begins. Is this person even saved? I mean, we read commentators, and, you know, and then they come up with all different kinds of answers. Now let's look at the new one, the one that I'm calling the JD version, you know, Joe Durso. The law came from God who is spiritual. I am of flesh, which if I am not dependent upon God by faith, it is of no help. Now, I have to tell you, it's not a stretch to interpret it that way, translate it, I'm sorry, translate it that way from the Greek, and in that translation of the word, he's in the flesh, but this flesh is an inherently sinful and wretched and wicked and always does wickedness. If it is, then do we have a problem because Christ was in the flesh and Christ was perfectly holy. The body, which, yes, he was born sinless because he was born from the Father, but he was still born a man. He's completely God and he's completely man. And as a complete man, he lived in the body without sin of any kind. He, He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So now we're in the flesh. We're in this carnal machine we call the flesh. which also involves the soul. And in this flesh, according to 14, according to our English version, it is saying, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. Well, if the person speaking in Romans 14 to 25 is a Christian man, which I believe he is, and the context and the whole of the context denotes and really dictates that we see him as a Christian, because every aspect is through these verses. Well, then it it doesn't work. I am of flesh, which if I am not dependent upon God by faith, it is of no help. That's right. The flesh is of no help. Help apart from dependence upon God by faith, but upon dependence upon god by faith you have what you need to live a godly and a holy life so he goes on in verse 15 for my labor i do not know from personal experience because that is not me anymore as a regular routine of life now that's that part that's first sentence in verse 15 is cons- perfectly consistent with what god is saying in the new Testament, 1 John, I'm going to pick on that because you can't read through 1 John without, and if you read it in the Greek, it's in the present continuous tense, making it a routine of life. As a regular routine of life, as a practical living at, if, at of, a, of a child of God, is one who's consistently living a victorious life. Not always but not always in sin. So the labor that he's doing, my labor, I do not know from personal experience because that is not me anymore as the regular routine of life. God has birthed within me a new desire. That's the new man. And that's what 15 is saying. Unlike, for what I am doing, I do not understand for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Now, I don't find that in verse 15, that that's the only thing that he's saying. I have found what's in there is that, as the regular routine of my life, that's not his normal experience. God has birthed within me a new desire. Now he follows it up by saying, what I, what I labor or what I do, I hate. So there's that part, which he's going to go on and explain a little bit more, that part which he does hate. It's there, but not completely there. I mean, is that the Christian? He's completely defeated, really? Verse 16, For if I work out this desire, I consent with the law that is good. So there there it is. When the Christian is, which we're going to go right into chapter 8, and he's going to talk all about being spiritual. And chapter 7, 14 to 25, is in no way consistent with chapter 8. And that's why you have to start tearing it and into it and saying, well, this isn't a Christian man. He's only speaking to Christian men in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7. I mean, he's, he's saying incredible things in chapter 6. He's saying, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. What, what, what's he saying that for? If, he, if he's going to be consistent here. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died, and this is, that's verse 6 of chapter 6, verse 7, and chapter and verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Yes, we have died. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For death, that he died, he died for sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, well, how different is that? He doesn't switch from chapters 5, 6, and 7, and then 8, it's a whole new... No, no, that's not the context. The context is complete identification with Christ in 5, in chapter 6 and 7, working through this whole process of sanctification and that we're not perfect and we're not whole and we're not complete and there's this body of sin that's residing outside the new man and the new man is a new man in a new position of authority, in a new position to be holy and to be victorious over sin. And it's all through these chapters. And then we get to 7, 14 to 25, and it's like, what happened? I think the translation is what happened. Verse 16. So he finishes up verse 16 with this For if I work out this desire, consent with the Lord that is good. And verse 16, 17. But now the work some, is sometimes forfeited. But now the work, and isn't that true to a real Christian? who spends time in prayer and reading the word and sharing his faith and fellowshipping, if it's good, solid, transparent fellowship with other believers. But now the work is sometimes forfeited. And why forfeited? Because when you miss the mark, and that's the word used for sin, as a forfeiture. You could interpret it forfeiture. You could use that word. It would be a a good translation. Forfeiture of what? It's a forfeiture of the presence of God, the will of God. When you hit the mark, you fulfill God's will. When you fulfill God's will, you hit the mark. But now the work is sometimes forfeited because sin missed the mark within me, sometimes. That's exactly what happens in the life of a Christian. There's a battle going on, yes. Consistent, constant defeat? No. No, that's not the life of a Christian. So verse 17, I would render it, but now the work is sometimes forfeited because sin missed the mark within me. For I perceive, and I, I'm going to call this, as I think through this, let's call it a paraphrase because I'm not a Greek scholar. But I would like to see Greek scholar come with this who's not being manipulated by some demonic being to give this the due that it needs and to translate this better. Better than I'm doing it even right now. But I'm going to stick with this until I see something better come along. I'll always read other versions, but then when I look up the words, I'm going to go, yeah, no, that's not good. Verse 18, For I perceive no good residing in my flesh, as it is unaided by God. I perceive Good, good word I could use. For I perceive no good residing in my flesh as it is unaided by God. This body is fallen. This uh, part of us, is it's fallen. And when we uh, are raised from the dead, we'll be raised in a body that is no longer fallen. We will be given a body that is able to transmit to, God is able to transmit to us, just picture a pipe through which flows the spirit of the living God. And from second to second, being renewed every moment. So that Christ lives within the believer in a perfect vessel that's able to transmit God. For I perceive no good residing in my flesh as it is unaided by God. God makes the flesh good, even in a fallen man, who he comes to live within at the new birth. But the willingness to act well resides beside it. Here you got the flesh, you got the soul. I perceive no good residing in my flesh as it is unaided by God, but the willingness to act well resides beside it. Two sides in a new nature, a new heart, but like the man who carries a pack, a backpack, and he's carrying it alongside. And that throughout this chapter, throughout these verses, there's that alongside in the Greek, beside in the Greek. So it's a new nature. It's a new person. But like sin that's crouching at the door. It's alongside, crouching at the door. And it wants to pounce. And it wants to bring the Christian down. It wants to defeat the Christian. It's there. That which opposes, bringing to a conclusion, the beautiful good that inspires others. The willingness to act well resides beside that which it opposes. So there's the opposing of the thing on our back we call sin, which in itself is no good unless it's aided by God. But when God comes alongside, when God fills the heart, when God fills the mind and takes control and he becomes the master as we are the slave through faith, then the conclusion is Something beautiful and good that inspires others, which is why we're here. We're here for others to look and say there is hope, that God does transform the human heart, that God can make a new person of a sinner, and He can turn a sinner into a saint. Yes, that does exist. And that's why we're here. Verse 20 But if I do what I do not want any longer, it is sin that remains. He's calling sin what sin is. Sin is part of the believer. 1 John cha- chapter 1. Let's to zip to 1 John chapter 1 real quick. What does he say? This is the message we have heard from the beginning and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Speaking to Christians. Speaking to those who he they, they came telling that they touched, they felt, they saw, they lived with Jesus. And what's the message from Jesus? This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. There's nothing untrue. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That does not sound like a wretch to me. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know what happens with a person who's been cleansed from sin? He has joy in his heart. He has a passion for God. He has no guilt. And out of that, there is a a humble awareness of the love of God that propels that person to do even more good. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is a person who's walking in truth and understands this negative flesh that's living alongside. But he's not. A wretch. He's a person of chapter 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Sin is a part. And then he concludes this thought in chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What's being said? Very clear, very, very, very clear that sin is present, and it has to be observed all the time. It has to be, the watchman has to be standing on the gate, not going to let the enemy in. It's a daily warfare. It's a warfare with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the flesh right in the middle of it all. The world on one side, the devil on the other, and we're in the middle, and there's an enemy living within that can be controlled, that can be put to death, that can be substituted for a resurrected life of Jesus Christ. We preach the resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead. And in that resurrection from the dead, the Christian has victory. A victory like the world cannot have, but a victory that's there all the same for those who live identified in Christ who walk by faith? what's that look like? Well, in this portion and in every portion then you're going to go to what that looks like is a man who takes God at his word. See the Christian who's defeated is a Christian who's well and there can be many reasons for it, but in for second Corinthians chapter 10, you know there are these strongholds by the devil, and I don't want to get too far off track. But I think we need to look at it briefly for a minute. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were, and that's First Corinthians ten, and that's not what I want to do. Apologize for that. Uh, good chapter, good verse. We could we could go to, but in Second Corinthians chapter ten, he makes this wonderful point. For now, I Paul myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meekness when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask when I am present, I need to be bold with the confidence with which I suppose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked in according to the flesh. Ooh. Paul's saying, yeah, we're not walking according to the flesh. Well, that doesn't seem to go with what we're saying, what this version might say. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The context here is warfare. People who war in the flesh lose. People who war in the spirit, for the weapons of our warfare, verse 4, are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Fortress, like a fort. There's no getting in through that. But God can destroy any demonic fortress we might be completely weakness to do so, but not God. Verse five: We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing's raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's a bold statement compared to Romans chapter 7: 14 to 25, if we want to understand it as a wretch. Doesn't fit. never fits. Follow me as I'm a follower of Christ. Paul knew defeat. He's in completely on the right track. Track with First John that talks about sin and the awareness of sin and walking in the light. And when we identify sin, we put it to death, and we live on in the resurrected life. You see, because we're aware of sin, and because it's always there and it's always desiring, that's how. Just a look at next week when we get to the, the conclusion. This man is not a wretch, but he is beaten down and miserable. He's he's undergone hardship every day of his life as an individual. And he needs to be rescued from this misery of soul. But misery of soul, because of this hardship of being torn between the new man, this new creation, and this miserable flesh that's always crouching, ready to pounce does not mean defeat every minute of every day. Please. If you want to live a defeated life, you just a life, you just believe that. You just walk with that in the forefront of your mind, and you I guarantee you can live as defeated life as you want. But why would a person who has Jesus Christ living in his heart and his mind, who understands the reality that Christ who is Almighty God in the flesh, the Father sending the Son to die for his sins, took those sins, carried them away, carried them outside the camp like the scapegoat, took them into eternity never to be remembered again. And he's clean now. Why would a person who could have appreciation for such a gift of love where the anger and the wrath of an eternity was poured out on God because only God could endure such a thing in three hours from noon to till three o'clock. When the sky grew dark, Christ is hidden, the wrath is poured out, and the result is our sins are forgiven, and in three days he's resurrected from the grave and newness of life, and that's his life, not ours, and that's the life that he desires to live through us Why would a person give in to wickedness and weakness every minute of every day or most of the time so that he would cry out, I'm a wretch? Now I understand saying I'm a wretch even with little sins. How can I commit this this stupid little thing knowing that Jesus died for me? That's one thing. And it's just as real. I mean, you, you can just feel just as awful. But it's one thing to commit a sin, to see it as, in God's eyes, as a completely miserable, big, ugly thing. Like your mind wandering as a, as a man and having a lo- lustful thought for a woman. Comparing that to 10 years of an adulterous life with some woman that's not even your wife or while you're married... Comparing those two things and saying it's the same. This is the kind of thing that just drives me a little insane when I hear Christian people talk like that, as if they're somehow being really spiritual because in God's sight all sin is the same, when it's not. Now, I, I, I don't know God's mind as if I were God, but in, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says we have the mind of Christ. And I'm telling you, as a person who has the mind of Christ, God doesn't view, as I could prove if this segment was about this, but I don't have time and it's not about this, from the Word of God, that God does not see all sin as the same. There's different punishment for the amount of light a person receives, for instance. Little light, big light, more stripes, less stripes. It'd be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for this generation, How is that all sin is the same? Judges chapter 2, and each succeeding generation did more evil in the sight of God. How can you do more evil when it's all the same? And we can go on and on, and it's a whole big explanation. What am I talking about? I'm talking about there is sin, and then there's perpetual sin, and then there's sin from which you never get victory in the case of a person who's lost and not even saved, and then there's lost and vic- there's a loss of victory in the life of a Christian believer to such as an extent that all, all that he's, much of what he's been uh, working at in his Christian life, some of it, is burned up more than need be. If he understands the scripture, he applies himself in faith to the promises of God made in the scripture that can be found even, yes, in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25 which we will come back to next week. This week we are ending with verse 21. uh, Verse, was it 19? The inherent good that arises from God I desire by faith. I do not produce by habitual practice the inner malice. No, we didn't read that. We read 18. For I perceive no good residing in my flesh as it is unaided by God But the willingness to act well resides beside it. That which opposes bringing to a conclusion the beautiful good that inspires others. Let that be our place of residence. Let the place of residence be the beautiful good that inspires others. Because the good that lives within us in this new creation that we, we call our regenerate soul. Let that be the person we desire to believe be and we believe we can be because it's promised and stated right here in Romans chapter 7. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for the, the perfect, inherent, and infallible word of God in its original form in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. We thank you and we acknowledge that as students of the word, as we are meant to be, that the student does not idolize men as though men can do no wrong. We understand the most godly of men can give way to demonic influence. Paul had to battle and he battled in the spirit and not in the flesh. The weapons of his warfare were spiritual weapons, spiritual faith, spiritual hope, a spiritual man. Make us such men. Men that don't take for granted what the Bible says, just assume that the commentators were all right and even the translators are just as good as they could be but rather to do the hard work to know all the scriptures and what they say and how consistent they are or they must be. You are not a liar, and a liar is a person who is inconsistent. You are not inconsistent. You are always light. You are never darkness. You never hide. You never tell anything that's not truthful. God, bless these concepts and these principles. Bless us with this so that we might walk in the truth and we might please you And we might be a testimony to the world of what is beautiful and good. And may it inspire others in our life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.